Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for tuning in to the Big Honker Podcast. Be sure, go to iTunes, leave us some reviews. We love seeing those. If you have any questions at all, be sure to message Jeff or I. Jeff, where can they get a hold of you? They can ho- holler at me on the telephone at 940-658-3172. Email goose, G-O-O-S-E, for the literate people, at net, or looks up at stanfieldhunting.com. Or they can look at me on Jeff Stanfield on Facebook or Jeff L. Stanfield on Facebook, which I'll be out at Facebook deal on that account in the next two days. I'll make it easy. If you need to get a hold of me, go to Instagram, Andy underscore Shaver, and I will be happy to answer any questions that you might have pertaining to waterfowl or anything else fun. All right. This podcast is brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries, and those fine people at Dive Bomb have given you a promo code, saving 10%. What is it, Jeff? Trump 2020. Trump 2020. You put that in at checkout and you save yourself 10% off of the best silhouettes in the market and not too distant future, I hear some floaters are coming out. So, you know. If you're a pigeon hunter, they got pigeon. Yeah, they got pigeon silhouettes out right now. And uh, later this summer, they will be introducing their floater line. So go to divebombindustries.com, get everything that you need silhouette-wise, use the promo code TRUMP2020, and then come back later in the summer, buy those floaters, use the promo code again. This show is also brought to you by Boss Shot Shells, direct to your door. Bismuth is back in style. Just takes one. Just takes one. You're not having, you know, if you're a good shot like I am, one shot, <laughs> killed, dead. No more uh, running after cripples and all that other fun stuff. Stone Cold killing them dead is what it is with one shot. And that's it. BossShotShells.com. We're also brought to you by Lucky Duck. Spinners are a necessity if you are a duck hunter. Lucky Duck has spinners. If you're a predator hunter, they've also got you covered there. Uh, turkey season just wrapped up, but hey, never too early to buy your uh, your next turkey decoy. So go to luckyduck.com and you can get those spinners for this next coming season. They've also got pigeon spinners. So I guess everybody's shooting pigeon pigeons. spinners will be awesome for the dove. For the dove, eh? For the du- pigeon spinners will be same shooting the d- over the doves. Ooh. Look at there. Multi purpose. So go to luckyduck.com. They've got all of your spinning wing decoy needs. We're also brought to you by 737 Duck Calls. The boys from Oklahoma make a mean duck call, a screamer. Get the old number one. It's a single read. I'm a single read kind of guy. I don't know about you, Jeff, but it's what I like. The old number one. Made in America, made in Oklahoma, shipped directly to your door. No big box stores to compete driving up those prices. It's a rock bottom price. 737. Made by great guys, great duck call, great product. Look them up. Get your duck call. Get your lanyard full of, of 737s. And this show is also brought to you by Athlon Optics. Also a U.S. made. Athlon Optics is a proud U.S. sports optic product company devoted to designing and delivering superior quality optic products and outdoor accessories at a competitive price to you, the consumer. Athlon has strong engineering design capability, strategic alliances with quality manufacturers, and a streamlined, fully integrated supply chain. Whether you're shooting prairie dogs or scouting those geese or ducks the night before, Athlon Optics has a product that you need. So go to athlonoptics.com, get your binoculars, get your scopes. They've also got red dot sights. They got it all. If you need to look through it so you can shoot something or find something, Athlon Optics is the way to go. We're also brought to you by Sea Light LEDs. Light up the world. Great for bow fishing, 
great for hunting, great for just your uh, in your pickup. You need some lights, uh, off-roading, four-wheeling, whatever it is. Sea light LEDs, the best sea light, the sea, best sea lights out there, or the best lights out there. Best LED lights out best there. Best LED. It's, two, it's 2019. There's no sense in running around in the dark. Technology's too good. Prices are too. You know, we've they've got it figured out. Competitive price. Ollie's scratching himself over there. He must have fleas. Competitive price. Sea light LEDs is the way to go. That way you're not fiddling around in the dark. Also, we're brought to you by William and Chris Wines. Texas wine at its finest. Chris is a good friend of ours. Great client. Also figured out how to make a hell of a wine. He's truly living the dream. He, he loves what he does. Drinks wine every day. Almost like uh, if, you're a wine, if you're a wine enthusiast and you get to make wine and do that every day. Probably like being a hunter and getting to hunt every day. WilliamandChrisWines.com. They'll also ship it to your door. It's summertime. Summertime. It's wine drinking time. People. Yes, it is. Finally, last but not least, we are brought to you by Stanfield Hunting Outfitters. You can take this one, Jeff. Um, holler at us if you're looking for a corporate dove hunt. Weekdays, about all I've got left. i got some weekends left October. Stanfieldhunting.com. We can take care of you on dove hunt. Got teal season. We're going to have a lot of teal this year. Yes. Got weekday teal hunts available. You got four guys want to come up and do an inexpensive duck hunt in the morning, shoot some teal in September. We can do a lodging breakfast and a morning teal hunt. That's stanfieldhunting.com. Call me for details at 940-658-3172. Thank you to all of our wonderful sponsors. Okay, this show, we've got the Prince of Poachers, Charles Beatty. All through the 70s and 80s, he was poaching on some of the biggest ranches in South Texas, killing some monster deers illegally. Chickens come home to roost. He does a little bit of, uh, he's got a couple, he does get arrested at the end, but we'll save that for, we don't want to spoil the ending of this. It was an interesting podcast. Um, definitely don't agree with what he did, but... Um, it's a story. It's a story, and it was an interesting story. So anyway, here he is, Charles Beatty. Welcome to the Big Honker Podcast. I'm Jeff Stanfield. I'm Andy Shaver. And on the phone with us today, we have Charles Beatty, ex-outlaw deer hunter, author, Prince of Poachers Part 1. Charles, how are you doing? Doing good. So, I've read the book, and how does a man, You've you, did you name yourself the Prince of Poachers, or did someone else tell you that, name you that? Oh, there's a story behind that. At one time, my nickname was the King of the Kennedy Ranch, and I knew others that had killed bigger deer there than me, and not any that had hunted as deep and as long as I had or took as many deer, but I didn't figure I was the king since I didn't kill the biggest deer ever come out of there by an outlaw. <laughs> so one day I was sitting on a sand dune contemplating that, and I thought, well, after all I have done, there's got to be a little deity here somewhere and i said what's next in the chain of command and i said well i guess that has to be the prince so, so how, how many talk, of the, go ahead sorry well talking to a journalist once sometime later i told him this and he said that's it that will be the name of the book 
prince of poachers. And since then, I've developed like a double meaning to that, but I won't go into that right now. It's, it's going to come in part two. So how many other poachers were out there on, on, the, on these ranches? I knew, you know, most everybody, except from what I heard through the game warden when I was finally arrested that they had a bunch out of Houston coming down there. But, you know, I knew a dozen to 15 different outlaws that would go in the Kennedy Ranch. Why, why the Kennedy and not the King? Because you talked about you shot in the book. You, you you leave your apartment in Kingsville and you snuck across to the, I guess the headquarters field pasture, whatever it was, and you were hunting a big deer there, and the cowboys almost caught you in the helicopter. Yeah, and, yeah, that's one of the reasons I ended up in the Kennedy. It was risky in the open mesquite and grassland of the King Ranch. It was just a matter of time before I got caught there. And I found out about the Kennedy Ranch through a man that came in the taxidermy I worked at down there, and he invited me to a section of land that he owned in the middle of the ranch. Well, the Rifkin Ranch. And I thought we were going to hunt his ranch and trade some taxidermy for it. We get there, we jump his fence and take off any direction we wanted to go in, and, and we're, you know, killing deer in no time flat. We're rattling up deer just like going to heaven dear heaven well that did it you know the canopy of the live oak was a lot safer environment to do outlaw hunting without the fear of getting caught and i sort of slipped the king ranch and securities and game warden and mickey by doing that because they already heard and were looking for me in the king ranch so here i was another county away and i had no idea so it was a perfect double mickey for me to slip the wardens and go down there and just, you know, from there, it just continued. And I've hunted a lot of other places, but that was my home turf. Well, see, I, I just got back from down there. And from Sarita south towards Raymondsville, is that, that's the Kennedy where you were hunting, right? Yeah, there's some on both sides for a while. But most of the Kennedy ranch is on the east side of Highway 77 all the way to Laguna Madre. But now, the, the issue nowadays is there's 25,000 game wardens. I mean, 25,000 Border Patrol agents there, but <laughs> besides all the game wardens down there. But back then, I remember going as a kid, we used to go to South Padre a lot, and that was pretty much no man's land through there other than an occasional Border Patrol agent. So yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of pressure on you once you got across that fence, was there? Not when I was going 14 to 20 miles deep. That was another one of my tricks. The game wardens weren't even coming across my tracks. They were looking to defend on the perimeter. That's why I got away with it so long. I wouldn't even start hunting until I was 12 to 14 miles deep, and I'd travel that distance at night. And then I was so far ahead of them, if they ever picked up my trail, it's impossible for them to catch up with me. Now, now we're going to get a lot of mixed emotions on there because a lot of people think you're an outlaw and they don't have a lot of use for you. And other people, it's kind of like it's kind of like um, the old outlaws in the Wild West. They become folk heroes, but a lot of people had a lot of bad deals with them, and a lot of the people that were ranch owners are going to have a real issue with you. and And I understand that as a, as landowner, and I'm in the hunting business, but. You went to extremes that I've never heard of, and I couldn't put the book down. Once I started reading it, I read the whole damn thing cover to cover. When when you would go in on the Kennedy, and it's real thick, and you'd get that far in, what what did you did you pass up a lot of small deer? Because you you killed a, how many big deer did you kill? Well, I'm brought out of there a total of 116 in the trophy class, Whew. and that's 150 you know, to 170 inch deer, right? Well, 
almost all of those were from 155 up, you know, many in the 165 and up category. I never brought any out over 180. I saw bucks get away that were certainly over 180. Big deer just get away. You know, it happens. I don't care how good you are. Even in the wild where they've never seen mankind, one thing can happen and go wrong and lose the big opportunity to kill a record buck deer. And it usually does. It just usually does. What, 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 to your best guess, what do you think the biggest deer that you saw get away was? I saw a 220, no questions asked, but I didn't see it in the Kennedy Ranch. I saw a deer over in the Red Nunley near Ensenal in a pasture there that was said to be about 20,000 acres. It was up in that triangle between the old Freer Road and the one and the 44 and straight down out of Ensenal. And I couldn't believe my eyes. I buck fevered. I just I was walking up a creek and I laid eyes on him for just about six, seven, eight seconds. But he was standing behind a doe I was watching after a little buck jumped the creek and looked back. I looked where he looked back and I saw the doe. I never saw the buck behind her till he moved. And when he moved, it looked like a whole tree moving. And he, he had to come to a complete stop twice to go under a big overhanging limb because his rack was so big, and then he just vanished, and I was just standing there with my jaw hanging open, and the guy with me never saw that deer. He was looking at the eight point that jumped the creek. And I I was just choking. I couldn't even think to throw up and try to get off the shot. (laughs) Now, they they got on y'all's ass on that place, didn't they? You only hunted there like one or two days, didn't you? I didn't go back there. Um, The the boy that was with me got caught that year. Him and another friend went when I'd come to Fort Worth for Thanksgiving, and before I could get back down there and hunt the rut, they'd been caught in there. So the what tracks got. What'd they do to them? The tracks were found. At that time, and the, I guess the misnomer with the law, as severe as it is now, back then, a $200 fine, and you're out of jail. You're out, you're out of court. It was a slap on the wrist back then. It so outweighed. The cost of, of hunting trophy country was up around 1500 to 2500 on the best endemic county at that time. And if you got caught poaching, it was a $200 slap on the wrist. I mean, that's why it was going on so much then. Right. As the laws began to change, the, the balance began to shift. It's not worth it at all now. Yeah. Period. Now they'll, I mean, they'll, they'll take guns away for life. They'll lifetime ban you. I mean, it's, it's serious business now. Well, you go to prison for two to ten. If you have priors and you've got a reputation, it's going to be ten. You know, go after an armored car full of cash first. You know, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I would be more worried about getting caught by a bunch of cowboys or a ranch owner in the middle of nowhere is what I would have been. You know, you, know, you were on target to start with. I always felt like it would be Border Patrol customs it'd be it'd be dea and that's happened to some other outlaws dea seen them seen their outline with infrared intents and tracked up to them and got them at night i had a good my best friend george moore he's passed away now george you know he broke one major rule one time stopped in the roadside park on the way to the drop off and i've been warning him don't do that and border patrol followed him lights out from there and before he could get over the gate and run 20 yards, it lit up like Candlestick Park. And his wife had already drove off, and they were hollering U.S. Customs as they skidded to a halt. And with him lit up, dropped the gun. He said, I'm just a hunter. He dropped the gun. Well, he went to jail before he got 20, 20 yards into the ranch. So, you know? 
so you say don't you say don't stop at the roadside park for, so they were looking for him saw him in the area and then just tailed him to where the drop-off was yeah there's more to the story he'd been pulled over doing that two weeks earlier and i said don't do that don't get the brakes slow until traffic passes and you got to clear behind you and then hit the brakes and bail them don't even turn around northbound before you get out get out going southbound that was one of my tricks just wait till the traffic is right while you're on foot, then burst across the median and you know, on into the ranch. But, you know, I had a lot of tricks that kept me cleaner than, than the encounters. I'd learn from other people's mistakes. I don't, I don't think people understand that kind of the geography down there unless they've been down there a bunch. It's the thickest country. It's the thickest shit there is. It's cactus. It's briars. It's, it's real thick shit. And the only people down there are either people running drugs running uh, illegal Mexicans or have something bad happen to them on the road or they're going to Padre Island. I mean, it's not a – most people in America cannot realize how tough a country that is down there. Uh-oh. Yeah, it, it's no walking the park. <laughs> it's no man's land. So back in those rough when, – when you got back in there and stuff, what's the weirdest thing you saw on any of your trips back in the middle of nowhere? I think the strangest thing that I ever saw was a meteor strike. I, I, I saw the the bowl. It looked like a tank dam about 30 yards in diameter. And I think I could find it again. But it's only about three miles off the highway. But I, I just saw something that few people walk up on like that. It, it was clearly a meteor strike. If it were mine, if they knew how to go in there with metal detectors and, and whatever they used to test the site, they'd probably find the meteor buried in that sand there because it just blew a big impact bowl out of the ground there. It was not man-made. And, and, and you said you would go 12 miles back before you started hunting. Yeah. How, many, how long would it take you to get 12 miles? You'd walk it all in one night, or how long would it take you to get back there? About half a night. I mean, I walked four miles an hour, you know, on any of the hard roads that I'd pick to use, and I knew the trails. I'd get on those caliche roads. If it was dry, you could cover ground quick and easy and be back there. And when you got off the road, you wouldn't leave a mark getting off the road if you were careful. And they didn't have any idea you were back there. Now, going in once it's wet is a different story. That's where a lot of my heat came from. A lot of my close encounters was... Oh, Joe Harrington, he was tracking me and on many occasions, and he tried to get the jump on me without the troops, but when he saw he wasn't going to get me pinned down, he'd call Tom East, and Tom East would call out the troops. He'd bring in five helicopters quick, and they'd swarm it. That wasn't going to catch me. It wasn't going to catch anybody that had enough guts to take off running when the gig was up. If you knew you'd been hurt after popping a shot, if you felt pressure being tracked, and you felt like they knew you were there, you heard any sign at all, they were going to get on you. You could run three or four miles, and then by the time they lit it up, you're three or four miles north or south or east or west of where they're focusing and concentrating, and you just started laughing. I mean, we had a lot of laughs. Hot pursuit was fun at one time. You know, it got where it wasn't near as much fun as I got older. I didn't like having to run three or four miles from pressure. But I hated worse than anything to make the mistake of staying in an area too long after popping a shot and having them onto me being there. And then the next day, they lit it up and had me pinned down. So, then it's a matter of going underground. Well, the Kennedy was a perfect place ranch because there was, there was, nobody, there was no deer leases on it, correct? At that time, in 84 was when they first opened 
the hunting up and there was 80,000 acres. I believe it was five or seven pastures they had opened up and I knew where they were. I had a map of it. I was, you know, like a lot of people inquiring through others and getting my hands on the map and I knew the pastures and I knew the deer that were there, the quality. And I was offered a guide on two of the pastures that I knew well that I killed some of my biggest deer on. And the group that was putting it together had it leased out from under them by some guys in Dallas. It's part of the story coming later, but in part two, but they undermined my group and they got it out from under the last pasture available. And uh, it looked like for a while that because I had quit at that time and I'd, I'd started going to church and had no intentions of ever poaching again. And it seemed that God was going to reward me and, here I was going to be right back down there and getting to hunt legal and guide friends, and it didn't develop, you know, and that's just the way life goes. And then, but, uh, and then you went back to you went back to poaching right after that. After six years of no poaching, no intentions of ever going back, I went through a what can only be called, and you'll see some details coming in the first part of part two that explain why I went back after having quit and surrendering all my heads to date. I turned them in. I, I wiped the slate clean. I threw away all the pictures I had. I had no intentions nor desire to ever go back to poaching again. And I had a backstabbing buddy seduce my wife into an affair, and she was a church pianist with a bunch of dignified, rich parents, wealthy parents, and they bought her the divorce with a bunch of scheming, conniving, illegal criminal acts and took my son. She ran off to Missouri with a banker, and I was just left in shambles when it was over. I'd been locked up seven and a half weeks on her lies. Well, even the judge was in on a take, I heard, but from an attorney that investigated it all. But it was over, and I was in just nothing but, well, where do I go from here? No real love for hunting anymore. No real desire to go hunting, period, let alone illegal. And it was a police officer that I developed friendship with in Arlington, Texas, where my shop was. I'd, I'd done work for him for years. And I knew him well enough. I felt like I could trust him. I had a little thought or two that said, you know, this might be a setup. But he started talking about having me take him. He was disgruntled, like a lot of hunters get, paying high prices year after year. No deer. Places were shot out. He said, if you can get me a 20-inch spread 10-point buck, I'll go. I said, well, it ain't the question of whether I can get you a 20-inch 10-point buck. It's, you know, we we need more than two days. And he said, well, let me go talk to my chief. He goes and talks to his chief. He leaves my shop in uniform in a squad car. He comes back in a little while, an hour or so. He said, I got two more days. Well, I got the four days we need. Let's go. And he called my bluff. I never th thought he was going to do that. Mm -hmm. I didn't have anything to lose. I didn't really care about the going hunting, but I thought, you know, taking someone that's never done it, now that puts a different twist on it. That'd be some fun to make someone else's dream come true. I'd done that in the past, but that always meant more to me than killing one myself at a point because I'd already killed so many. I, you know, it wasn't as much fun for me to kill one as to see someone kill the first giant dream buck. Well, I took him, and he killed five deer. He killed a double drop tine deer, which is just a beautiful beam that had the beams looked like they were made of wax and you took a torch to them and let them all start dripping in many places up and down and in between the middle of that. It was formed and caused drop selection. It was, he scraped both beams somehow in the velvet and it just caused this elaborate looking dripping wax formation all along the bottom of both beams and left a couple of two inch drops in the middle. Not real long big drops. They weren't genetic. It was just beautiful.
And then he killed the first deer he shot was the big 10.157 inch, 20 inch inside spread, just like he wanted. And, uh, you know, an extra deer with his bow and, and, you know, a couple of more bucks that he just didn't want to pass. And I let him kill them. And it was like, when we got out of there, I'd killed one with my bow, you know, just for good measure. We jumped some and I shot a buck before they run off. I killed one going through a tight hole in heavy brush. And so I got a bow kill and, and he killed five trophies and we came out and, we were pulled over by highway patrol coming back, uh, almost back to Waco. And uh, he said, stand the truck, let me talk to him. He gets out and goes back there, and they, they told him to put his hands behind his head. He had a knife on his belt. And then they pulled the knife, and then they said, okay, give us your ID. And he pulls his ID, and once they saw the badge, it was over. I mean, we had backpacks with all these heads caped off, and where you been? Where you been doing? I've been hunting with my buddy there. You know, he's a taxidermist, and we're taking all these back to be mounted. And see y'all later. We're gone. That was it. They cut us loose. So then we get almost to Arlington, and he goes, now look, I don't know if I can tell my partner or not. We're real close friends, but he is by the book. And I said, that's your call. I'm not telling nobody you've went. I hadn't been in my taxidermy one hour, and this other cop calls me. And I recognized his voice. I knew him. And, uh, he said, is this the world's greatest white-tailed deer guide? And I said, you got him. He said, you got to take me too, man. I've seen the bone. I've seen the wood pile. You got to take me. So I take him next. And he's an ace, traditional archer. He kills a 174 Boone and Crown Pope and Young with his longbow. And it was just an incredible rattle and hunt and shot the way he shot him through the neck and there exploded and, you know, wood splinters, that cedar air shattered and blood burst everywhere. Just all he had was a neck shot, but at eight yards, I saw it all. Mm-hmm. And it just, you know, the dream hunt of all dream hunts for him. I mean, we were rattling up a hundred and something bucks on each of those hunts. I mean, they'd never seen nothing like it. How far did you walk in with these guys? We didn't start hunting until we were 12 miles deep. And and they knew they were trespassing. Yeah, they knew they were trespassing. I mean, and of all things, you know, they were both police officers. And, and you know, it was back on then. I, I mean, I didn't have anything to lose at that point. They had restored my love for hunting. It was like God used that to heal me from the bitter divorce, losing my son, which I wouldn't see again for 19 years. So, you know, I didn't have any future hopes for getting back to seeing my son and that was just all out so i was in it for the hunt so i began to take old high school buddies and and some other guys that had never been you know on the upper level and then uh, making more dreams come true at the end of the first year we we killed 26 more bucks on 41 days total of hunting in five different hunts now were you charging I mean, them for to take them not a dime that's one more misnomer about me I sold one pair of deer horns one time to keep a child support warrant from coming out on me when I had no other choice. But it's like my old boss said in South Texas. He said, show me a true trophy whitetail deer hunter, a walk-in hunter. I'll show you a man who can't, you can't buy his horns. They're not for sale. And that's the way I was. So you shoot six deer in in one outing with, with the first cop. What do you do with all these deer after you've got them? Well, I showed him out one for him, and, you know, he made a pair of rattling horns out of one of the bow kills, and, you know, I actually gave him my rack to do that with, where he'd have a real nice set of 145 rattling horns, you know, good mass, and, you know, he just 
treasured all the shed antlers we picked up. I was just, he knew he would never go again. Both of them knew that. One was married. He knew he'd never go again. That was a promise he made to his wife. You let me go once, I'll never go again. Just got to fulfill the dream. And the other one, same deal. He, he was going to stick his neck out once to enjoy white-tailed deer hunting on the ultimate level and get the guaranteed trophy dream boat during the hunt. And he, they did, both of them. Do they, did they and, not have any remorse for doing it illegal? Oh, I've seen, you know, word get out. I mean, the funny thing was it got all over town. And they came back to the shop and said, CB, come outside. We've got to talk. I said, what's up? They said, man, it's getting out all over town that we went on the hunt. I said, I ain't told nobody. Mm-hmm. They said, well, I know we, we talked too much. We've shown too many people the heads oh, and it's oh, got shit. out. And uh, I said, well, they didn't get it from me. And he goes, well, he said, come on over here a minute. He goes, we got another officer that wants to go with you. <laughs> so it got rather comical at that point. Yeah. And I, I was going to take a third cop, but he didn't have the like five or 600 gas and groceries to pull it off. I said, well, I ain't paying for it. If he'll pay the same five or 600 to cover the cost, we'll go. It was just a matter of them footing the bill. Mm-hmm. I know yeah, that. But um, I- that's what it got it back started. And it went on for nine more years and 75 more deer and, you know, I hunted, you know, some other ranches besides that. I mean, I was actually caught back in the Kennedy, but it was just destiny. You know, if I was going to get caught anywhere, I'd just soon it been there. That was my home. See, I, I would get – I couldn't do it because I've crossed the fence before to go pick a bird up that I've knocked down, and I'm nervous as hell I'm going to get in trouble for just going over and picking up a bird. I can't imagine hunting on someone else's stuff the – I just the, the, what about you, Andy? Would that not just scare the shit out of you? I'd be nervous, but I, you know, I'm 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 a nervous guy anyway. What? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's true. Um, so, what signs would you look for after the first shot went off to see if you had somebody close that might be closing in on you? Now, your ears are your biggest defense as an outlaw. You you know, you're like a deer. You can hear where you can't see. They got the added advantage that they can smell where they can't see. Mm-hmm. I've witnessed their hearing save their life with an arrow halfway to them and, and stop or bolt. And either way, they, their ears save their life. I got the biggest jump on pressure when I'd hear it. And certainly if I could see it at a distance, that was another you know, definite clue. And I could observe that and see what they were about, what they were up to. And I've seen times when it looked like they were coming in on me when they were doing nothing more than putting out mineral blocks on a windmill trap. Right. And once they came and were briefly there and left, then I knew what was up. You got to weigh every situation, and you, you have a lot of encounters like that. You see a lot going on. You know, probably so much now with all those uh, wind generators, you could it wouldn't be possible. The, uh, the night hunter would be the the one that could still pull it off but you know had to go mop foot you'd have to tie mops on the bottom of your feet and be track free you didn't normally leave tracks in the kennedy ranch there's sand you know the brakes and up in the live oaks you'd lose they'd lose your tracks if they were on them so much you could do to hide your trail but when i got caught it had been raining for three or four days in a row and the, the sand was just like making a cast a plaster cast of your tracks and even when they'd lose my trail in rough heavy brush the short shrub oak with the good leaf bottom with no tracks and i busted a lot of heavy brush routinely just to keep people off my trail and 
they're able to run circles around the live oak and pick up the trail ahead and they do a lot of leapfrogging they're trained they know what they're doing they can gain ground on you quicker than you think when you stop to rattle every time you stop to rattle they're gaining ground on you they're not stopping and rattling when you do they're running they're jogging they're moving down all the good tracks they can find at a high rate of speed so they can gain they they admitted to me and my journalist interviewing them once that they tracked me 17 miles when they finally caught up with me but you know one warden had already collapsed and went back to the truck but the the trail i made was two and a half days old so when they found my tracks that third morning they were on those tracks for 17 miles non-stop that shows you how much ground they can cover now they're not carrying 100 plus pound backpacks but they can move and there's seven or eight of them there and they're saying you know let's go let's go they're all pushing each other to get close close in i, I can imagine what it looked like you know on their end yeah what all would you pack into these places? You said your pack was about 100 pounds. Well, I went high tech. I mean, once the additional, like you were talking about, U.S. Customs were given all these, at a point, like two or three years into me going back out of retirement, there was a buddy of mine. He was my genius. He was my ride man. He worked on all the jet engines out there at the naval base. I mean, the guy was a wizard. He was Hawaiian from Hawaii. And, you know, Reggie was a genius, and he would watch for me and add any clues he could to help me. And he said, listen, this year, the article just came out. They've, they've got two vans, satellite, infrared receiving, reception. And he said they've got so many more planes and choppers in the air at night that are bouncing stuff off of their readings, off their infrared to, to watch these drug runners and stuff. And he said... It hits the satellite, and then they read it from there, and they can send in ground pursuit. And he said, you got to do something to cover that. And I said, I already got it. He said, what do you mean? I said, the cops taught me how to use infrared heat barrier. And so I had lined the inside of my tent. I had military issue with that you know, aluminum heat barrier built inside it. Anytime I felt since any pressure, I sleep inside that tent. And, it, you know, they couldn't get me like they had some over in the Robert East with the DEA seeing the outlines of humans in the tent and closing in before daylight. I mean, they give them the coordinates and they GPS them and then they can lead them right to the tent, no matter how far out in the middle of nowhere it was. And they were busting people like that. But they weren't getting me like that. No, you know, I just had, I went high tech. I had every kind of cookware. I had a lot of weight. But I'd gotten strong again real quick. I got real strong real quick. You know, you you do that routinely, and you know, you, you're real strong near the end of the season. I think my pack weighed 145 pounds when I got out of the boat on that bay ride. It was probably what kept me from getting knocked down by the north waves that were hitting me in the back. That was the only. You know? that, that's the only part of the book that I didn't like was when you when you said that it was you felt like you were going to the beaches of Normandy. And well, I, I thought the that reason was, that came to mind was my brother was a marine. And when he saw me, you know, in action, he was impressed when we got under helicopter pressure. And he said, you should have been a Marine. You've got what it takes. I, I well, just, when I, thought I got that was... out of the boat, I thought about that. And I said, well, maybe my brother was right. Maybe I do have what it takes to be a Marine because it just reminded me of storming the banks of Normandy. I was 100 yards offshore when I got out of the boat. 
I had to wade in, and those waves were hitting me nearly in the back of the head. It's not over my head in, in cases. And, you know, 4 o'clock, broad daylight, middle of, you know, middle of the afternoon, I knew no one else was on the water, but I was thinking I might be being watched from the shore. And I think I was. I, you know, I think the whole arrest and capture was a setup, and I'm, I've got proof of it that the guy that took me in the boat tipped them off. Now, did you know, did, did you ever want to go strictly bow? That way, the gunshot wouldn't ring out. Well, that's what the second police officer insisted on. We didn't take a gun. I came out of there with having killed a. 12-point typical, and with one eye guard broke off at the beam, he still scored 155. At the time, he was the number five typical ever taken with a bow in the state of Texas. We came out of there with two Pope and Young top five deer, and we didn't have a gun. And when my buddy picked us up, he said a big elaborate story about being up in the brush on the Pilon Seal while we were in there. He went on a two-day hunt, and, and his wife had picked him up, and he's telling us about crippling the 26-inch spread, which he found later. But he was telling us about shooting it and getting away, and he's going to go back and find it. He felt sure he would, and he did later. But after he told this long story, taking us home, he said, well, did y'all see anything? I said, we scored. He said, what do you mean you scored? I said, we killed two top... You know, real close to top 10, Pope and Young Deer. He said, you're kidding. I said, no, one's in the mid-170s and, and the other's just short of 160 probably, you know. And he goes, really? And I said, yeah. I said, we had him in the bed of the truck. He hadn't seen him yet. When we got to his house, he said, I can't believe it. He said, I hunted with a gun and crippled the deer. Y'all go with bows only and kill two, you know, record book deer. It's kind of amazing to me. How, how did you, with all these deer you pulled out and stuff, and, and the game wardens had to be on your ass, and they had to be checking your shop, how did you hide? What did you do about tags for deer and stuff? Well, throughout most of my, you know, if you want to call it a career as a poacher, the tags are carcass tag. Once you're away from the meat, right, that's right. the tag remains with the carcass. Mm-hmm. And as long as you've got them pulled off your license, if you're checked, well, where's your tag? You know, let me see your license. Well, tag's on the deer. Where's the meat? Final disposition. You know, there were loopholes in the law then that they are making them, you know, harder to do now. But, you know, there was loopholes. You know, there was ways outlaws could cover their own rear. I mean, not if you had... 12 or 14 registered in your name, but see, they've got them registered now. You still, you didn't have to register a deer at a taxidermy. Now they use the taxidermy shops as a sieve to try to catch these guys that are killing more than the limit every year in trophy deer and having five or six mounted. What? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to switch things up a little bit. Did you ever, uh, you've killed an guy down there. Did you ever shoot an Oryx? No. No, uh, there, I've heard there's some exotics on the Kennedy Ranch now for some of the Sarita Safari's uh, exotic trap. I heard they put a high fence trap together. I never saw it. I never saw any exotics other than the male guy. I've got a buddy of mine that's got a lease down by Raymondsville, and they got oryx on their place. They only kill a couple a year, but I just was wondering if there was any on the Kennedy. Um, big rattlesnakes. You had to have some run-ins with big snakes. You're not going to believe me. I never laid eyes on one rattlesnake my entire time I hunted. That's never. I, I would have never guessed that down there in that area. That's crazy. Right. I, I mean, I've seen a lot of the blue indigos, and the blue indigos are the reason the rattlers are controlled. But more than that, the wild hogs eat them. Mm-hmm. I got a story coming in part two that will make you understand. 
Hogs dig for snakes all day, all night, every day, and every night. They eat snakes, and the wild hog population is out of control, mm-hmm. and they keep the snakes down. Oh, don't get me wrong. There's eight, nine-footers in that coastal clump grass out there in that prairie land, but you don't go sleep in that. Right. But the, the the most deadly snake I ever saw was about a 30-inch coral snake, and he was less than five yards from where me and the first cop rolled up our sleeping bags. And he, he I stepped over him, mm. and he goes, CB. And I looked back, and I made a leap and tried to stand on him to get him. I wanted him, you know. And that thing shot so fast in that short shrub under the big live oak canopy, I couldn't believe it. I didn't know those coral snakes could move that quick. But we were both like, we slept right there. That shook us up a minute, you know. So, he could have easily crawled in one of our sleeping bags. Yeah. How, how old were you the first time that you poached a trophy whitetail? <laughs> 19 years old. 19 years old. Where were you? I was living there in Kingsville. And, uh, you know, I we started a taxidermy with a professor in the university there that marketed these bob wire quail that's why i moved down there was to work for this guy and in no time he had lost a lease on his building downtown we ended up moving in with the big major taxidermy shop there in kingsville and that very first season i met the clan you know all it was just like I say in the book, it was the it was a den of game thieves. It was the perfect environment to spawn, you know, such an outlaw as I became. Once I met those first five outlaws, and they showed me, you know, how, how the ropes were, you know, jumping the fence and barreling in, and I became fearless. You know, I had some close calls that ran me out of the King Ranch, and I did do some poaching there, and mostly at night. But I got smart quick about the King Ranch. It was just a matter of time before I was going to get caught there. And it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. So when I had that, you know, they call it Porto Monte, that huge, massive, you know, live oak canopy of the Kennedy. Once I saw that, got the inside scoop on that, there wasn't no keeping me out. I'd already become a runaway train. I just found a track that was covered I could run under. You could run a purple polka-dotted elephant down under that canopy, and they wouldn't see it from a helicopter. What were some of the close calls on the King? Well... The one where I had to dive into that cactus during the roundup. And, and we got ca- chased. Cal- the cattle guys were, were rustling some cows up, correct? I could hear, yeah, I could hear the dirt coming off of their hooks. I mean, there's some gumbo in that area, black dirt. And it, I could hear it hitting the ground, falling off the hooves of them, the thunder sound of them hooves. I could hear the dirt coming off those horse hooves when they came by me. They'd come by both sides of me. They didn't see me. I thought they had. I had one choice to hold and hope they hadn't seen me because when i saw them i was looking into the east sun coming up and right behind both those cowboys was a helicopter heading straight up the swell right at me and i was like i've been seen already and there's no way around it now and i had one hope and i was diving in that cactus and hope they hadn't seen me and they didn't mm. and they went right by me mm. and i stayed pinned down for you know three or four hours there total time i waited after they left and then got up and made a break and run out of there but that was close and That's as close as you can get. And after that, you just figured King King is not worth it. No, it was a matter of time before I got caught. Now, how bad did you have thorns all over your body? It took eight months for all those needles to pop out of the top of my thighs. It was funny. Oh. I'd sit down, go to the bathroom, 
big old needle would pop up out of an ad stand. <laughs> inch, inch and a half, two inches long. Jeez. I'd just laugh and pull it out. <laughs> My goodness. Now, on the Kennedy, you tell a story about you were hunting and you heard them drive in with the helicopters. Right. Now, were you still shooting up until the time the helicopters come in? How, like, oh, no. When, now, when I first heard the first assault with a helicopter to try to catch me, and they killed two birds with one stone, I mean, I heard it was um, $500 an hour for Tom to rent those birds, and so he pulled five in there on the first encounter I had like that. And when I heard the first one crank his motor, I thought it was a bulldozer cranking up. And then, you know, I began to say, well, I hope it's a bulldozer. Mm-hmm. That big motor, you know, you know, idled up real high for a while, about three minutes. And when it idled down, when I heard that engine lope like a racing motor, just and I thought, uh-oh, that ain't no bulldozer. And then, shook, 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 shook. And I heard the blades crank up, and I was like, helicopter. And then I heard four more get up behind it. Oof. Little did I know, my buddy George had already seen them. He was coming in off a rig at daylight. He saw him pulling five helicopters in there, and he knew Tom East in a heartbeat. Everybody knew Tom East. If you laid eyes on him, you knew who he was. Old red bandana around his neck, and I mean, bald, shaved head, and I mean, everybody knew Tom. He stood about six, five, or six, and mountain of a man. Well, he went to my house, and he told my girlfriend, Betty, he said, Charlie hunting. She said, well, I'm not saying. He goes, well, if he's hunting down there, he said, I'll tell you what, he better get ready. He said, I just saw Tom East pull five helicopters on trailers into the lower Kennedy, and that was the group that was after me. And I had to run dive in a brush pile. He made such a beeline on me the first run, and then I stayed in there all day. I was pinned down every time they'd blow the leaves off my hair. I'd cover my head back up. I mean, it was, you know, I couldn't get up. They had me pinned. I'm assuming the game wardens interrogated you a lot. Well, yeah. Yeah, they had a lot of questions. I actually, I went on what I call a fishing trip a year after I was caught, and they had me down for a visit, pick up, you know, my gear, return my gear to me. They held my gun another nine years, but I finally got it back. But um, they they asked me a lot of questions, and they drove me around in the ranch. They, they had told me if I'd quit, they'd let me back on the ranch anytime I wanted. And I never held them to that except that one invitation. And they took me all over, and they were just like on a fishing trip. They were fishing me for all information they could glean and try to learn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was pretty truthful with them about techniques and stuff. And they admitted, they said, helicopters are no good, are they? And I said, no. And, you know, they learned something from it. I learned a lot of their approach, you know. But they can't be, like my old buddy said, I had another friend of coming out along down there while I wasn't poaching, and he had a, you know Theodore Roosevelt's viewpoint on it. He said they can watch all of it some of the time, and they can watch some of it all of the time. But he said they can't watch all of it all the time. Yeah, you know? and so that was his. He played the odds, right? And he was he was never caught. Now you were a member of a group, a secret society, and y'all had a banquet every year. I guess poacher of the year banquet, or you called yourself some no, kind of it was outlaws. The, the the bishop outlaws. The bishop that outlaws. town ten miles north of Kingsville had a select group of homegrown, you know, born and bred outlaws. Generation of them. There was a generation before them. Their dads were all previous outlaws, but they were the old clan that never told anybody nothing. And of course, 
that was in the era of the, some people disappeared and never come out of the ranch and said to be shot and all this stuff. But, you know, whether that's the truth or not, I'll never know. But, you know, they were great guys that loved to hunt. They had this inherent right in their mindset, like, you know, we own that land just as much as they do. And, you know, they kind of halfway got me believing they were right <laughs> after opening word of prayer over the barbecue, you know, at my first meeting. But it was just great fellowship. You know, we were the outlaws, but, you know, the only good thing was we weren't having to pay the taxes on the land, you yeah. know. Yeah. Kind of beating the system both ways. So is that kind of is that kind of the mentality that, that these guys had that, and they passed it on to you is that, you know, we've got as much right to, to that land as they do? Well, they had that mentality. I knew I wasn't supposed to be there. I was from Fort Worth, Texas. <laughs> right. I didn't. I didn't have that birthright. They felt. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't really fully relate, but I understood it. I understood their viewpoint being born there. Yeah. Right. So you you said earlier that you would put mops on your feet. What what would you do? Did you just cut the cut the mop head off and and tie it to your feet. How do you do? How do you do that? Well, I've got a video on YouTube where I describe that, but I took and made me a homemade wire needle, and I used parachute cord for my thread. I had found out, you know, as I went high-tech, that parachute cord is unequal as far as something you wanted to secure, and I just bought those mop replacement heads. I drilled 10 holes in the soles of my combat boots at a 45-degree angle. They were out of sight. The game ones never even noticed them. They, they, they'd been cut off of the pair of boots I was wearing when I was caught, and they they remarked about the boots. They had me look, at, hold them up where they can look at the soles to match the print to my track. Yep, that's the track we saw. But they weren't taking a close enough look. They didn't see those ten holes. Of course, sand, mud, whatever packed in some of them on the bottom. But they didn't look along the seam of the sole and and the boot and see where I had drilled in there. And and I sewed those mop heads on. But I didn't start doing that until I dreamed it up. Whenever. George and my old outlaw buddy Dennis Music were going to go hunt the Robert East in Jim Hall County. I've been thinking about doing it for quite a while and going west and hunting the brush, but you you track you get tracked real bad over there. For one thing, you leave a bad track, and for another, they had a rumored fifty plus illegal aliens working on the Robert East Ranch. He was caught with sixty five or six of them a few years later, but. When I'd heard they were busting as many as 80 and 60 in two years consecutive, they busted 80-something the first year they started doing that, and 66, I believe, the second year, and they were bringing it to a stop. Most of those guys were out of Houston, but they were catching everybody that went or at least jumping them because they could track them. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I'm going to go one time over there, but not without, and they were, they'd been wrapping toe sacks around their feet with duct tape. They'd still leave a mark, but you couldn't tell which direction it was going in. So they might track you the wrong way or send them, have to send them in both directions split up. But anyway, I said, I'll go, but I'm going to put together my, my bottom boots I've been thinking of. So I sewed them suckers up and we got in some tough heat. I think we were seen from a hilltop. And when we barreled down into this flat, we were in the open. We could be seen for two, three hundred yards making a run down through there after we'd seen a buck spook so bad by us. I knew. He was not running from a big buck. He was running from a man. Mm-hmm. And I told Dennis, I said, he's running from a man, Dennis. We got to go. We got to make a move. He goes, you're right. He's running from somebody. Let's go. So we ran five, 600 yards down this, this galled and open place and low cactus. And then we started into heavy brush. And when we got in that heavy brush, 
I mean, troops were swarming. We could hear vehicles driving in, four-wheelers, trucks. And I said, we got to bury up right now. And I saw he was leaving the mark. I said, get in front of me. And I stomped his tracks for the last 150 yards going into that heavy brush. I mean, it just erased all his marks. And we got in this dense, heavy brush, cat clawing, wild here, and that old black brush. And I mean, we're face down to the ground. We're not looking up. Mm-hmm. And there's men all around us at 10 steps or less at times dragging. You can hear the brush dragging off their clothing, and they're talking, whispering as low as they could. I thought I heard one of them say, I saw him come in here. You know, and I mean, they walked circles around us mm-hmm. for an hour. And then they finally eased out when they couldn't find the tracks. And they I'm sure they were scratching their heads wondering what, what in the world happened. But they had a truck parked on a fence line less than 40 yards away, and I didn't even know that fence line was there. Well, finally, I was sitting there listening to this, um, the Houston Astro game where they were, um, not Astros, the Oilers. I was listening to the Houston game where they blew that 48 to three point lead at half or something. And, and I, I put my headset on trying to calm my nerves and try to picture myself in Reliance Stadium and <laughs> it wasn't working. I kept having a vision of some man running up and sticking a gun to my head saying, don't move. Yeah. And I told Dennis, I said, Dennis, I can't take this. I, I said, this ain't my style. I said, I got to make a move. He goes, well, whatever you think, CB. So we got up and we started tippy-toeing out of that heavy brush. And he was, you know, behind me, but standing tall. I was crouched looking through the brush, trying to spot legs, feet, anything. And uh, he goes, CB, he goes, isn't that a truck right there? And I raised up high enough to see the cab of a truck less than 30 yards away. And I go, yes, get back in the brush. We had to stay holed up there till nearly dark. And, you know, we had the uh, same real situation the next day. We, we were kind of in a heavy area, not knowing there was a fence nearby. And another outlaw, we thought it might have been George, popped a shot. Here come the troops again and surrounded us again. And I told Dennis right then, I said, we get out of here, I ain't never coming back. It ain't worth it. And I passed a deer that was over 165, 12 points, 23-inch spread. And he said, here, shoot him with this 222. I said, I didn't come over here and shoot a deer like that. Let's go. And we just walked off from him, you know, but, you know, that wasn't the deer I was after. I was after a 185 or better over there. And they had him. They got them, period. George killed a 20-point buck with five drop tines within five minutes after we separated. And the main beam was broke off going up and down on the brake. There may have been 15, 18 inches of bone broke off that rat. I mean, no telling. That they have that kind of deer there. That's exactly the kind of deer you go in a ranch like that to kill as an outlaw. Yeah. So you weren't he, you weren't satisfied with just a one sixty five er. Man, you know, Not, I didn't let people. I would see several over one fifty five in the Kennedy when I would take friends and not let them shoot them, and they'd get mad. I'd say, "We didn't come here to kill the hundred fifty five inch deer. You can't carry them all out of here." You know, we're looking for 165 and up. That was my, that became my standard. If he wouldn't scare 165, I wouldn't let anybody shoot him. Now, you climbed over the fence at the Y.O. Ranch, right? Not the Y.O. I was in an area in the hill country, not too far from that Lakey Dam. I believe that's what the Ingram Dam at Lakey, that, um, is about the last town I think we went to, Ingram Dam, and then I believe a little town called Hunt. And the only time I went in there was to retrieve a soccer buck. I jumped a fence somewhere else that was high fence once carrying a uh, black buck antelope. I mean, my buddies did. I back, I drove the truck. And, uh, you know, as far as high fence goes, I never cared a thing about it. 
I didn't care anything about exotics. It was just some summer of July fun, you know, fun and games. It was hilarious. I titled that chapter Hill Country Hilarity because it was just a gut buster trip. It wasn't about a trophy. Exotics weren't even a trophy to me, certainly not the velvet horn axis I killed, but that was low fence. That was some free range axis. I mean, I didn't have permission, but I busted a 32 by 32. Um, velvet horn and you know that's another head when i got ready to move back to fort worth from south texas i sold that head i didn't care anything about it you know Mm -hmm. it meant nothing to me how big were the fences that you hopped on the kennedy and the king just hog wire fence so nothing you're not having to scale a fence or anything like that it's quick over or under i mean you're over it within a couple seconds the high fence i went over was red and only right I mean, over there on 44 between Encinal and Trier, you know, I scaled that fence. But but where you, know, you I, are on the Kennedy, it's just, it's nothing. Just regular fence. Just no, a regular no, fence. No, it's to get low, low fence, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't give you two cents for one of these high fence deer nowadays. They're, they mean nothing to me. And, you know, I know some legal beagle hunters that feel the same way. They've been legal their whole life, and they just despise the polluted crossbreed hybrid brought in imports they can't stand it they said it's all over now you know the true texas trophy white-tailed deer has been destroyed mm-hmm. they're gone well yeah that, and they that, feel they feel stronger business. about that than i do <laughs> but, you know they yeah. wanted the purebred texas you know deer period looking back would you do this all over again you know i didn't Dream it up and scheme it up. It it was what it was. It you know it is what it is, and it ain't what it ain't. And when I look at all the fun I had, I look at the hard times I've had in life. It's almost like I deserved it. I mean, it's like God's paid me back for all the pain and suffering. But the the level that I got to hunt on has ruined me. How can I ever enjoy or get really excited about hunting again unless it was something similar? Not the thrill of outlawing it, but hunting a pure, unhunted land with low fence, natural, indi- you know, deer that are indigenous to that area. I just don't see there's any future in white-tailed deer for me. I'll have to just go hunt Canadian deer. I'll have to hunt deer in other states. Mm-hmm. I-, I just won't never feel the same way hunting Texas deer. I-, I just can't get over just walking over a fence, walking on someone else's ranch and hunting I, I I just would have been scared to death. How I mean, long is well, is that something that drew you to what you did? Did you ever hunt legitimately while you were outlaw hunting? Well, I tried. My plan, and it's in the book. You've read it. I intended to go down there and become an upstanding member in the community. And my professor buddy knew him. He knew Otis West from the Clayburg County Bank president. He knew Milton Kimball, State Bank of Kingsville. I became friends with both of them. They'd come in and watch me do taxidermy and visit with me. They liked me. Yeah. But the the barrier that was up between the King Ranch and all the common people was impenetrable. I ran into corruption right away. The, the other local taxidermist was a lady that used to do some quail for my professor buddy, and she was married to the game warden. And the game warden himself ended up poaching a deer on the King Ranch that the ranch approved of, but the state wouldn't because you can't do that if you're a state warden. And it got out. 
I mean, a picture of the deer in the almost feedlot of the refuge of the King Ranch was brought forward by that photographer, Jerry Smith. And when that happened, the whole town was buzzing, demanding his being fired from the state, and they had to let him go. And the King Ranch hired him private security. They <laughs> they locked him anyway. They told him he could kill the deer. They told him, yeah, if you don't shoot that deer, some outlaw's going to get him right off the road, so go ahead and shoot him. And just say you killed it in the Lorellis pasture. Well, it all came out on them, you know. It's the age-old scripture. Be sure your, your sins will find you out. And when it got out, it was a big stink. So and, where did he where know, did he shoot this deer? What was the controversy with it? He shot it where he shot it in a feedlot. He shot it in the refuge. Oh, that okay. area around the almost feedlot is considered the sanctuary, mm-hmm. and no King Ranch family even gets to hunt there. Um, even old Jimmy Yarborough, that you know, I knew him too. He was one of the heirs, and he'd come in the shop, and he used to take the owner's son legal hunting and. Jimmy was restricted to not hunt there either, but he said, "But I'm family. Like if he saw the one, if he saw the buck he wanted, he would have probably shot it in the refuge." You know, right? So that story gets out, and then the state of Texas demands something happens to this game warden. Yeah, see, this has all happened right about the time I was fixing to turn to outlaw. Mm-hmm. I tried to be legal. I tried to befriend some people and trade some taxidermy and. and get invited i went down there to get invited legal to hunt the king ranch it wasn't a possibility yeah just too too much politics in it no, no, too much politics now your friend had the ranch that was inside the kennedy was it the fiscum ranch or the the riskin ranch riskin. r-i-s-k-e-n harry riskin was having his mounts done at the taxidermy i worked at and the boss introduced me and he said go with this man right here he'll get you a big buck you know, he wanted to see me kill a big deer. I was training his son to do bird work. I was a real asset to his shop. And, you know, I met the man, and I traded taxidermy work for him to go on the hunt. But what shocked me was, I mean, I should have known. But as soon as we get there, he wanted to go spotlighting. And we rode around, and I shot an L guy and a hog with my 25 off 6. And, and he said, okay, let's go kill a white, let's go kill the big one. And we jumped his fence and just started rattling up bucks everywhere. Good bucks. Big deer. I, I didn't know how good it could get. It got better in the Kennedy than I ever saw it in the King. I hadn't had the luxury of walking all over the King Ranch in the open country rattling up them deer. But in the Kennedy with the live oak canopy, we had that, you know, ability to, to walk anywhere we wanted with the cover of the live oaks and just keep hunting. So you now, They could- were scattered in places, but, you know, it was a safety factor. But you could get in there to hunt legally, and then you was illegal crossing the fence. Did you ever hunt on his ranch? We we feed the deer. We you know, I bow killed some meat deer. I like I said, I'd shoot a nail guy every year hunting with him in the fall. Fill up my freezer. How big a place is his? That section is a is a, what they call a short section. It was six twenty, not six forty, and it was halved at one generation. His dad was owner of half of it, which was 310, the north end, and the Uncle Carl, his uncle, owned the south 310. And um, one of those boys was just a real bad outlaw, and he got caught and ended up finally he had to go to prison for a while, and he just wouldn't quit. I think he was shooting deer off the road, driving in and out the easement, but, you know, on that El Pastel Road. But they caught him several times, and he finally had to do some time. They were getting 
tired of it, but you know, we from the north end we could go east, north, and west, and it was solid brush for miles in all three directions. How big's the Kennedy Ranch? It's four hundred and forty plus thousand acres. I mean, it's like twenty two square miles. Twenty two by twenty two by twenty two by twenty two. It's big. And and what's the King Ranch? It's seven hundred thousand. I can't guess at it being much less than a million right now. At one time, it was two point something, and see, the Robert East was originally part of the King Ranch. The, the southern area of um, what's that county there below? Not Brook could have been Brooks, but Tom East married one of the Clayburg daughters. Robert East married one of the Clayburg daughters. Some that stayed with the ranch there around Kingsville married a couple of them. But it went into five different pieces at one point with the five different Claybird daughters is what I knew about it. And um, so that's how it ended up being in five different counties. It got scattered. And they owned two point something million at one point. That's, in, that's a, incredible. Now, when, you, when some of your buddies started to get arrested, were you ever worried about any of them spilling the beans on you? No. Listen. Those outlaws wouldn't. You could beat them and break their legs with a bat, and they're not going to roll on their buddy. So flipping was <laughs> never. Flipping was never. You know, somebody gets busted. Flipping was never even in. Never even a thought for you. It's got to be in your heart first. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so when did you finally figure out that the end was coming? When the end was when they were drawing close to you. <clears throat> I was tired of poaching. And, you know, there's a spiritual side to my story, and everyone will see that in part two. But the summer before I got caught, I prayed. You know, I said, okay, I'm fishing down on the river as alone with God. And I said, all right, God, you know, if you got a plan for my life, like he seemed to have told me at times through other people in the church, he, I said, let's get on with it. I'm tired. I'm tired of that law hunting. If i got to give that up, I'm ready to give it up. But let's get on with whatever plan you have for my life. So I was seen climbing a tree in the Pilon Co. in mid-January for a couple of weeks prior to my arrest in the Kennedy. And I had heard a truck start rumbling my way from two, 300 yards off. So I got down. I was trying to get a bearing on where I wanted to go next. I got down to that tree and made a break, and there was a sendero, and that truck was coming down that sendero at me, and I ran across it and headed for some real heavy brush and up a hill. I got in that dense brush. You there, Charles? His phone might have died. Can you hear us? Call him back. Yep. You there, Charles? Yeah, I had lost my signal. Okay. Um, so so I, I started busting up in that heavy brush, and I was wearing mop feet, leaving no tracks, and I heard the Spirit of God say, you will be caught this year. And I said, right, they're going to catch the king. And he said, again, you will be caught this year. Well, when I got ready to make that final hunt, I was going to go to the brush. And something started compelling me to go to the Kennedy, something deep inside. My heart, my soul started pulling me to the Kennedy. And we had a guy pecking over trying to sniff me out when I showed up at George's. And even George started talking me into going to the Kennedy. I just was redirected. I was going to go hunt Demick County. I didn't want to go in the Kennedy, but I thought, yeah, it would be good to go back and see it. I hadn't been hunting it for a couple of years for the most part. So I took a boat ride, and I suspected the guy that was taking me might be, you know, a little 
funny, but he's such a deadbeat beach rat alcoholic, next drug addict. No, I thought, well, he ain't on the side of the law, but I didn't know it, but he was up on revocation of probation for testing positive for dope. He was trying to cut a deal and did to get a lighter sentence. It all came out later. It'll all be in the book on how I found out. But, um, you know, that's what got me caught. They were looking for me. I mean, I had an encounter with pressure right off the bat. As soon as I got off the beach and started heading inland, I was pressured. So I, I felt like all I could do is go deep. And, you know, like I say, two and a half days later, I'm 17 miles from there. And I'm thinking, I've got it. I'm way out of range. They will never catch up with me. And I was wrong. So you're, you, you organize a boat ride. And this guy's trying to get a lesser sentence. And he, he tells the cops, I can give you. He drove the boat in. I understand, but I, I'm trying to get to the to the corruption. He he told the cops, "Hey, I'm, I can get him at such and such place if y'all will be ready." Yeah, yeah. He set the whole thing up. He was in. And the warden, the warden, one of the wardens watched me get in his boat. And when he saw me load up, I didn't realize he was a warden. He was wearing plain clothes, a few docks down. I believe I know which warden it was, but. His eyes were bugging out like, that's him. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he was seeing a scene that I saw in a movie one time where they finally, these ferrets chasing a guy that was killing people, they finally caught up with him, and it was like, thank you, God. They couldn't believe, that guy's eyes were bugging out of his head, and he couldn't quit staring at me from about 70 or 80 yards away on four or five piers down, and I, I told that uh, that guy, Liberty, I said, I didn't like the way that old man down there was staring at me. He He knows something's up. He's suspicious. Uh -huh. You know, he saw me carry my backpack, my gun, and I didn't change into camo till I got in, in inland and put in put on dry clothes. But like I said, that guy was probably one of the wardens. And, and once he saw, once he was an eyewitness, I saw him load him in the boat. It's on. Then here come the troops. And they got over there. And like I say, for, for a day and a half, they couldn't even find my tracks. But when they found them, and they told me where they picked them up, then they followed me an additional 17 miles, which means, you know, I'd already covered 20-something miles of ground in two and a half days when they caught up with me. And they'd traveled 17 to get to me. And had you so shot anything on this trip yet? No. I missed. <laughs> the wind blew my bullet at a, on a 300-yard shot. I knew that little 7-millimeter of weight needed to be held on his hip. I just talked myself out of it. The wind was blowing over my shoulder, away from me, but quarter angle. And even at that, a good strong wind will turn the nose of that bullet in about a foot at 100 yards or a foot per 100 yards is what they blow. And I know that. Mm -hmm. I've known that all my life. And I said, I got a hold on his hip. And I thought, I don't want to gut shoot that deer. He was a monster. Yeah. He had nine other bucks with him. They were all laying down when I spotted them. And they stood up. He stayed down. And I got up enough to get a good look over the rise through the grass and see that he was the one I wanted. And he was just hairy, black horned deer with throw tines all off the top. Forks and handlebars sticking off every direction up on the back. And I was like, oh, God, he's a gorilla. And so massive, these big old gnarly, curly, long eye guards, just dick dastardly looking rack. And I was going, I got to wait on him to get up. I can't shoot him laying down. He started up. He saw me. He started up. And he ducked right back down to the ground. All the rest of them are up, getting nervous, and he's staying down. And I'm like, when he gets up, he's going to move on me if I don't get the shot off quick. So I was kind of pressured to make the shot fast once he stood up. I just couldn't make myself hold on the hip. Mm -hmm. So I held about the last rib. 
and there were sand dunes out behind him, and the dust flew, and I knew immediately the bullet blew out in front of his neck, and they broke, and he got right in the middle of the wad and maintained that position as they ran off, and I didn't even shoot again. I went, I ain't going to hit him. I'm going to hit one of the other deer. I can't get to shoot him. I don't want to shoot him up, and I, I waited, and I said, I'll find him the next day or two. I'll, I'll find that group of bucks. They were already bunching back up the first week of February, and I said, I'll find that group of bucks in the next day or two. And consequently, I stayed in that area looking for that deer, and that's what helped the game wardens catch up with me the third day. If I'd have left, if I'd have killed that deer, and it, I told a journalist, I said, I believe God just blew that bullet off there to make me stay in that area long enough to get caught. Right. What, <laughs> what day? What day did you miss? Was this the first day or the second day? What day did you miss? This oh, day? that was the night before I was caught. So, so day yeah. two, you missed this buck. Yeah, and they didn't hear the shot. It was downwind. I was aiming downwind. The, the wind was strong. Mm-hmm. And even though they were in the pasture looking for me, they were some eight or ten miles away. They didn't hear that shot. And, and if you'd have hit that buck, you'd have been out of there that, that night. Gone. They'd have never caught me. I was going to go five or six miles west to this area called the Parita. Not just the next day. I was going to go there that night. I needed water that whole last day. I was going to get water at that Motel Negro windmill, but I changed my mind. I said, no, I'm going to go into the Parita right at dark. I was sitting, waiting for sundown, and the sun was almost on the horizon. I didn't want to get out in it. I didn't want the sun on me, but I was going to cross this prairie about four miles and enter a whole new big body of live oak that's got a lot of big deer around this old windmill there, and I was going to get water there after dark. And so while I'm sitting there waiting that last few minutes, I hear footsteps close, about 30 yards down below me in this live oak. And I heard, I knew what human footsteps sound like in that ranch on those leaves. I've been listening to mine 22 years. I got up. I walked over and looked down in that bottom. I didn't see nothing. I didn't hear anything else. It was one of the wardens walking around in there trying to find traps. They'd lost my trail. I'd made a big 300-yard circle, even watched my back trail about an hour and a half. And they were so close behind my trail at that point, they must have crossed right behind me because I had just enough time to rattle one time. Rattle up a nice buck, took his picture, passed him. I said, I better go watch my back trail for a while. So I sat watching my back trail for an hour and a half. And then I said, okay. You know, we're going to get near your stuff. It's almost sundown. Get on up there to the parade and get your water and go make camp. So I get over and I'm not down long. Had a candy bar and got another dip in Copenhagen. And, you know, when I heard the footsteps, I looked, didn't see nothing. I got spooked. All my instincts kicked in. I said, get in the brush. Mm-hmm. Get in the brush. I heard it twice. And then I heard the Spirit of God say, just sit back down five more minutes, I believe it was, or ten more. He said, ten more minutes. Well, I thought he was trying to keep me from getting out in that open. I needed about 10 minutes for the sun to go down. So I didn't want to, but I sat back down, and I hadn't been sitting down five minutes. There he is, right there. Get your hands up. I mean, I looked over my shoulder, and here was eight men running wide open at me. Guns drawn and guns drawn. And, I mean, get them out there. They're yelling. And, I, I mean, you only get your hands so high when you're <laughs> on your knees. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and that's how it ended. It is is it a relief when it's over? What are you feeling when they finally lay hands on you? Listen, the power of God hit me, the peace, and I couldn't speak. I wanted to say something a time or two, and mm-hmm. I couldn't move my throat to speak. 
and it was perfect peace. And I heard him say, I told you, you would be caught this year. And I, when I, you realize you're in bigger hands than your own, there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, it's hands up. I was done. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of funny things began to be said and some laughter. And the whole mood, you know, just swung into a, you know, like a level of comedy. And the one game wasn't my fame. He stood me up and he patted down my pockets, front shirt pockets in, pulled out a few things. And then he said, well, Charles, old buddy, it's been a long time coming, hadn't it? And I said, how'd you know my name? And one of them rookie wardens in the back yelled out, when we found tracks this deep in the ranch, we knew it had to be you. But they knew it was me for two or three days, you know. Yeah. And and it was but, all over. And nothing but peace over. comes over you. Yeah, one, when they asked me, was I going to speak next, I said no. And uh, that one rookie, he mouthed off, if he don't uh, cooperate, we're going to throw the book at him. And Mike knew that was no way to handle it, and he just shook his head, no, that's not the way we're going to handle this one. And there was never any friction after that. Um, I say not. I got to the truck, and that old man that had had to get off the trail and collapse, he had gotten all the way around his mouth. He was mad. I'd made him look bad in front of his constituents. You know, he wasn't able to keep up with them. And so he was mad I didn't come to that windmill. He was waiting on for water mm-hmm. and tried to bust me single-handed. Oh, that just let the air out of his sail. You'd have thought I'd rape and mutilate his 80-year-old grandma or something. That guy was mad at me now. <laughs> they had to, one of them put a hand on his shoulder and pulled him away from me. He was just standing there frothing at me. <laughs> so he was, he was waiting at a windmill. Yeah, he was hoping I would come for water and he could bust me. That was probably his kind of an excuse, like, look, I'm pretty t- you know, tired. Why don't I hold on this windmill sure. in case he comes for water? What did they charge you with that day? Hunting without consent of landowner. You didn't poach hunting out, Hunting out of season. So you, Those were the two so, charges. So after all the stuff you'd done, you got the lesser charges that you could possibly have gotten. Yeah, not only that, they wanted me to have a good taste in my mouth because I made the deal to quit. They said, if you'll quit. I said, I've been looking for an excuse to quit for years. And they said, well, if you're serious about quitting, we can go light on you and everybody have a good taste in their mouth. And he said, we'll take you on the ranch anytime you want. And I never bothered them any about that. Just I accepted one invitation to go down there a year later after my case was settled while I was on probation and, and visited with them. You know, and, and I, the funny thing is, me and that head game more than my thing. We agreed. You know, you can't hate a man that loves to hunt. It doesn't matter if he's an outlaw or a game warden. And they were sportsmen. I didn't see that side of game wardens. I thought they're party poopers. I thought they were, you know, the bad guy. Man, them guys were great. I loved every one of them. And I thought they liked me too. It was a, a surprise to probably both of us. I mean, and it was it was almost a, a sad deal. It was like it's over now. We don't have him. To, to chase anymore you that, know well that's like, that's what i was going to ask is is it is it weird seeing your captor because you're you do this for so long and i'm sure during that time you've ran you've ran that scenario through your head of how you're going to get caught is it weird when it finally happens and you're looking the guys in the eyes that see you and it's probably got to be just as weird for them to see this guy that they've been after for so long yeah it was their Boone and crockett no doubt and you know, what had happened was when they first stood me up, I thought I was having one of those dreams I'd had before. I've had dreams. I've had dreams during the off year. I've had dreams of taking a nap out in the ranch mm-hmm. of being caught. Mm-hmm. And then I'd wake up and it was a dream. So when they stood me up, I said, you know, this ain't a dream. 
Right. This is happening. I thought I'd fell asleep and went into a dream. Yeah. It seemed like, uh, I, you know, I hate to use the word. I hear it all the time. It makes you sick. It was surreal for a while there. I didn't think it was really happening. Mm-hmm. I said, this is just one more of those dreams that I've had. And like before, I'm fixing to wake up any time. And they stood me up and I said, this ain't no dream. This is, real this is happening. Yeah. And what did <laughs> what was what was your penalty? Any jail time? I ended up getting I had to pay $1,750 to bond out. I had a $17,000 bond. No, it was sixteen five. So I had to borrow about 1700 from a friend of mine, and he wired it down there and posted my bond an hour later, and they let me right out from the courthouse. I never had to go be jailed. He told me, they said, we like you, Charlie. He said, a jail we'd have to send you to down in the valley is full of dopers and illegals. He said, it's a rough jail. He said, if you got the money coming, we're going to leave you here at Sarita and let them bond you out here. And I said, yeah, it's on the way. And he talked to my friend. He said, I'll have money wired down there to him immediately. And, of course, the bondsman said, yeah, his buddy sounds good. I'm going to let him wire it in the morning. I'm going to come get baited. So my bondsman come after me a couple hours after I'd been, you know, the wardens all left. Well, I visited, had fun visiting with that sheriff that held me there, the deputy. But, you know, the... Fine was five hundred dollars. The cost of court two fifty. Probation eighteen months. Uh, I messed up the next morning. Had breakfast with them, and I admitted I love hunting. I love fishing more than I love hunting. And they said, "Oh no!" And so then they asked for a suspension on my fishing license too, as part of my punishment. Mm-hmm. Well, that hurt worse than the hunting. So I had an eighteen month suspension with my probation, and of course I completed all that, but. You know, I, I never weighed in the cost. I mean, if you calculated, it's, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars worth of deer through over the years that, that I took and, and let friends kill. But that's at today's prices, you know, more if you go with, you know, all the same price of today itself. But it's, um, I took a lot of money. You know, someday I wish I made enough money off the book. I could just write the check. I write a check to the ranch and say, here's what I owe. But, you know, I don't know that that will ever happen. I don't know that I'll ever have that much money. But Did, did the ranch ever contact you ever? No. The foundation is owned by the Catholic Church now. When, you know, Lady Kennedy died, she had given the whole thing to the church. Uh, the East family, you know, Mike East, and he's got a son. They, they've got lifetime grazing on the Kennedy. But, you know, they don't own the land. You know, Grandma gave the whole thing to the Catholic Church. It's amazing. I mean, if you think I did them wrong taking all those deer, there's been two priests and books written about it, and Attorney General Dan Morales was after the last one, and he got away with over $200 million he stole out of the ranch. And then uh, the first one got away with $150 million. I mean, there's books out about it. That's interesting. I'm going to have to read up on that. What's well, a you're a very interesting story. Um I, I I don't know how you did it for that long. I, I I mean just just looking at it from just your nerves but that was probably that was probably part of the hunt for you was the thrill of not getting caught. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I'd go in there sometimes and be disappointed if I didn't have some heat. Right. It was it was part of the fun, maybe most of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like Roscoe P. Coltrane said on the Dukes of Hazard, hot pursuit, I love it. You know, it was addictive, too. 
Well, tell everybody how to get a hold of you so they can get you a book. They can get the book and read this book. It's a it's a good book. I don't agree with everything the man done, but it is a damn good book and a good read. And um, you paid your debt to society, and that's all that you can ask for. Uh, I would say that yeah, you're got- fine compared to the deer. You, you you probably spent about ten cents per deer that you killed, so I'd say you got a hell of a deal out of that deal. <laughs> Yeah, but don't forget, used to, not too long ago, the ranchers would let you hunt for nothing and just come up and mask them. Well, that, you know? Yeah, that, 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 that is true. So, Somewhere to beat your book at. Okay, my website is just simply www.princeofpoachers.com. It does come up sometimes under Charles Beatty Wildlife Artistry, wild slash life artistry. And, um, you know, there's a lot on there to look at. There's a lot of posts that I've made, you know, on Instagram and Facebook that they can to hear some short stories on. But the bottom line is I'm working on completing part two right now, and it's 10 to 1 better than part one, and I've had nothing but people that can't wait for part two that, that just rave about part one. But I'm telling you, there's a whole other side of me and of my story that no one's going to see coming. And I believe when it's done, that it'll, it'll just shock the whole nation. There's there's a whole different aspect to the story and the book and the the implication of the the title. You know, I had a Sunday school teacher when I was going to church those six years that told me it was a prophecy, and he looked at me and he said, "Charlie, God is going to change you from a poacher of deer to a poacher of the souls of men." And I'm seeing that come to pass i'm seeing it develop i've i've been allowed to go down trails and taken down trails that few people have gone down and and saw what i've seen and i got a story to tell that has nothing to do with hunting and it's going to be shocking i mean it's a very current profound issue of our day and i'm just going to leave it at that now do you write this book by yourself or do you have somebody helping you with it with the editing process and everything no, I, I apologize for the condition part one was printed in. But like I told you last week, I just survived a 15-year battle for my life with skin cancer, and I almost died seven years ago. I was at death's door, and I finally got the right doctor, a chiropractic doctor, saved my life. Well, I had part one written then. I had it typed. I just couldn't get out of a deathbed situation for the last 15 years to even write part two. I didn't think it would ever happen. My dad got the loan to pay for part one to go to press. I, you know, come off my deathbed, and I still wonder if I'd live or not. And I crunch wrote about 35 pages the last half of the final chapter that I stuck on part one real quick. And it went to press as was to make the deadline of the Texas Trophy Hunters Organization shows. And, you know, sad to say now, they're, they're at a standstill kind of against it. They won't allow me to sell my book at it right now. So everybody that wants my book is going to have to get it off my website. So you had a deal worked out with Texas Trophy Hunters where they let you into the extravaganza? And I'm going to be there all three shows. They can't stop me from showing my taxidermy there, and they're going to revisit my situation. Their new CEO just told me. Mm-hmm. He said, when you complete part two, we'll revisit this. And if I see the redemption of, of your story and I see the merit that I believe is, is acceptable, then we will reapprove you to sell your book at the shows, and I'm holding to that. And so I've stayed in the show so that I can just continue to maintain a presence. I'll offer free autographs to every copy of the book that's brought by to my booth at the shows. I'll be at all three. And so 
you know, all I can do now is just wait them out while I complete part two and let them review it. But I, I had it for sale at the first two Fort Worth and San Antonio last year. I didn't get there in time to go to Houston. But, you know, I think that's going to work out. I think they're going to understand, and, and it's going to be widely acceptable for them to approve me to continue selling my book there. It's not the 100 books I sold at each show. It's hurting me more not to be on their website and in their magazines. And, you know, I know that's territory God wants me to cover. It's the, I mean, it's a dead bullseye for my target audience. I mean, I believe my call is to reach the hunting world. That is my world, and I've got a testimony so powerful that it's going to shock the nation. I'm telling you, it's coming in part two. And when will part two be out? I'm shooting for late summer and early fall at the latest. I mean, I'm in crunch time writing mode again right now, and it's nearly twice the material of part one. I don't know if I'm going to be able to include all the hunts because there got to be many. But there are going to be, you know, all the really good ones, the bigger ones. I mean, I started going for lengths of time. It got outrageous taking the cops. It, there was other people that went from backgrounds, a world-renowned hunting consultant. That if he got out on him at the time, he'd have been ruined. He said, I've hunted all over the world. I've killed everything there is. And he said, when it comes to white-tailed deer, he said, I'd never seen nothing like this. I didn't know it existed. And he said, this is the greatest hunt I've ever been on in my life. And I took him and his son on a seven-day hunt and another five- or six-day hunt up in the brush. And they killed some beautiful deer. His son killed a double-drop deer. And, it, you know, I first met him when he took me on an out-of-season mule deer hunt in Marathon, West Texas. And we just hit it off. And it was like the best of two worlds. And, you know, we, you, you bond with people that love to hunt as much as you. And that, trust me, that man loved to hunt as much as I do. <laughs> And uh, we just struck up a great friendship. But, you know, that was all 20 to 42 years ago when all this happened. This is not last night on your lease. It was 20 (laughs) to 42 years ago is my story. That's the time span. It's a blast from the past. Well, we'd like to get you, when you get your second book out, have you come back on the podcast with us again? And we're going to be in Fort Worth at the show. We've done it for 26, 27 years. And we'll stop by and visit with you. Um, we wish you the best. And they can look it up at princeofpoachers.com, right? Yeah, www.princeofpoachers.com. Okay, Charles, we sure appreciate it. Like We wish you the best, and we will see you in August. Okay. Thank you, I enjoyed sir. enjoyed it. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Charles Beatty. Charles Beatty, I'm sorry. I don't know why I said that like that. I'm kind of speechless. You are? Yeah. I don't, I don't. I. The guy's got a hell of a story. I just, I have a real problem with what he done. I mean, and so does anybody else that hunts and pays to hunt and has a place to go. I mean, yeah. I just can't imagine people going hunting, knowing they're going to poach and going for seven days and the guy took his kid and shit. I just, I, that just shocks me. Yeah. I mean, I just really, you know, I've known some poachers out here that I thought were pretty big outlaws. Some bitches are some amateurs. Next time I see shooting, one of them. Shooting a deer across the oh, fence. Oh, wait till yeah. I see a couple of them, too. I'm yeah. going to tell them, well, you guys are a bunch of pussies. You ain't <laughs> shit. It didn't take anything to shoot a deer across yeah. the fence. I mean, it, but, but he also, geographically, was in an area that he could do that because it's so sure. thick. It's and not like it is up here. Between the Kennedy and King, we just looked up, there's over a million acres there. That's a lot of that's a lot of space with no houses. Yeah. And so he was in the, the area. The, the, the guy's got to be a great hunter. I mean, he was hunting in a... In a Rattling deer up. Yeah, but down there the deer are so... It, it's just amazing the, the, the type of deer they have. 
those deer sell now. The King Ranch selling deer for seventy five hundred ten thousand dollars. Yeah, but just to not have any kind of remorse, really, other than he got caught. Crazy story. It's, yeah, I, I, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't imagine. I wouldn't. I mean, I would just be in knots. I mean, I've talked. We've talked about this on the podcast. You know, uh, we do our best to make make sure you, that we are the ones that have permission to where we're going, and. You know, if you're hunting a new bunch of land and, and you get permission from somebody and, and uh, wires do get crossed sometimes, but I just know whenever we hunt a new patch of land, I'm always thinking like, shit, did we get permission from the farmer and the landowner's going to be mad or did we get permission from the landowner and the farmer's going to be mad when he sees us set up out here? I couldn't imagine going for seven days knowing you ain't got fucking permission to be on here. So Were you nervous in Canada? Yeah. And we went through every proper deal we had, and we had a visitor's work visa down there. We didn't even have a real work visa. Right. But we tried to do everything right, and we were supposed to do it. But we were, me and you both were so fucking happy when we got back to the United yes. States. When we got to the U.S., I thought, Felice, we go to jail now, we can get out. <laughs> you yeah. know? But I was. I was scared to death. But, I, mm-hmm. but that was that was cookies. I mean, we wouldn't even, we weren't doing nothing really illegal. It was just kind of a technicality on some paperwork. Mm-hmm. What he's doing is crossing no, you know, knowing willfully, no knowing hunting deer in February with a rifle. Yeah, I mean, I just the guy had some I'd balls, be nervous. but I mean, it, it is a good story. And like I said before, fifty years from now, people will talk about this guy like he's Jesse James. I mean, you know, he he, he broke a lot of laws, and I, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have no use for the man. Yep. But it was an interesting podcast, so thank you to Charles Bailey oh. for coming on. And uh, well, I want to hear him come tell part two. Yep. A great story. Looking and part two. People that are, I don't know the word you'd look for it, that are uh, it's controversial. That's what people want to hear and see, and that's why we did this podcast. And I've had I've had an email already on this. I can't believe you're doing this. Well, you know what? It's our podcast, and we're going to do what we want to do. We want to talk about people and talk to But everybody that's to this point of the thing listened to the whole damn podcast, so. They were interested in it, too. Anyways, thank you for listening. God bless you. Have a great day.